This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. One of the episodes we did for the TV series was about black market marijuana. Reporting on weed has changed just so much over the course of my career. And now, despite its legalized status, or, or maybe because of it, I found myself reporting from really intense situations, like the rooftop of this parking garage right in the middle of Los Angeles. This is very strange. They're looking at us. I would put cameras down. Right there at the top of this open air garage, they're dealing millions of dollars worth of illegal weed. So people come in here and that's what we're seeing is customers coming up here and buying weed from you guys? Yeah, they come in and they, they donate their funds and capital and they get to leave with some great flowers. Their operation was so brazenly out in the open that I'm amazed they were able to pull it off. Do you guys, because we were able to pretty much just drive up, do you have lookouts? Do you have people knowing who comes in and out? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a strategic system in place. Is that your security guard behind you? No. This guy with the gun behind you? That's not a gun. What is it? I can be honest with you, though. Wait, wait. I got things around. I won't ask you again, then. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series, Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market and meet people who make their living inside it. But this is a little different. From National Geographic and Muck Media, this is the Trafficked Podcast. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market, how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. Californians have a long history of smuggling marijuana in plain sight. Less than 150 miles south of the garage I visited in Los Angeles, a bunch of high school surfers began their transformation into criminal masterminds. Together, they ran a sophisticated weed smuggling business, raking in nearly $100 million and astonishing DEA agents on their trail. In this episode, I'm going deep inside the Coronado Company. More after the break. This week on the podcast, I'm going back, way back to the early days of weed in California. My guide for this journey is Lee Strimple. Lee grew up on a sleepy little beach town right off the coast of San Diego. This was the 1960s, and his face lights up just telling me about it. What Lee describes sounds like paradise. It was more than paradise. It's really hard to describe. When we moved to Coronado, I believe there were 8,000 people there. 
and many of those people were in the military. It was, and still is, home to a major naval base. There was a lot of innocence, there was a lot of freedom. Uh, you have to understand, living in Coronado was not like living anywhere else. It was a residential area that was a mile square. We had half a dozen stop signs in the town. We were surrounded by water. You couldn't get lost and your parents would always know how to find you, except when we went to Mexico. We'll get to that, but first... To go back to what our life was like in the 60s, the entire decade of the 60s that defines my generation, where we got started, what our attitudes were. I graduated in 1967, which is the true summer of love. It didn't matter if you were, you know, a, a bad boy surfer or, a, you know, a, an honor student or a military brat. We all lived on the island together and it was just a big, giant party for us. Lee says the parties were plentiful, the kids were innocent, and the surf was choice. Coronado has been touted as being one of the best beaches in the world, and it was ours. We lived on it. That's what we did. This laid-back environment is where Lee first encountered that other icon of 1960s culture, marijuana. We had a, a little drive-in, a hamburger place in Coronado, and it was called Bob's Drive-In. And it was just a little Southern California, a little eatery. One day when we came through to get our hamburgers, and I won't mention the fellow's name, but one of the surfer boys of our era was sitting on a um, picnic table, and he had a brown old shopping bag. A brown paper bag And it was just stuffed full of weed, yeah, yeah. And he was just sitting there giving weed away. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen it. He'd gone down to Mexico and filled it up and brought it up. I was an athlete, so it wasn't something, you know, I didn't hang out with people that did a lot of drugs and stuff. But all that was about to change. I think I figured out at one time there was probably a 20-year run where I smoked weed every day of my life. And when I was 17, when I first started it was just grade C Mexican weed. I mean, it could barely make you high anyway. Maybe you heard the wind different. Maybe the tactile experience of uh, the sun on your skin made you feel different. It was just a, a, a mellowness with your pals and things like that, so. How did your life as a, a weed smuggler, how did it all start? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> it's hard even having that label, you know, we're, we're a weed smuggler. What would <laughs> you call it? What would you call it? Well, I, I guess smuggling is the, is the right term. Living only 16 miles from the Mexican border, Lee says it was common for people to make quick drug runs to Tijuana. They hardly even thought of it as smuggling. But Lee tells me that one of the local kids, Lance Weber, had bigger ambitions. Lance was a, uh, he was a little older than a lot of us, but he was a, uh, had done a Navy term. He was an, an, an engineer, a mechanic and everything. And so Lance had this idea of how to get marijuana up, up across the border. Lance recruited one of his buddies, Eddie the Otter Otero. And Eddie was a swimmer. He was a water polo guy. He was a lifeguard. And, um, and so he, he says, you know, got Eddie to, to swim the load up. I think he gave Eddie 1500 bucks to swim that load through. How much was in that load? Uh, 25, 30 pounds. 
Of and weed, Mexican weed. Mexican weed, yeah. And I mean, bought right next to the bull ring uh, there in Tijuana. So Lance was an entrepreneur, and it didn't take him long to figure out that it's not the most productive way to get weed into the country is to tie it onto a string and have a guy swim out through the surf. It would take uh, Ed probably 25, 30 minutes to swim. That's it? Well, you know, the fence that divides at the beach uh, from um, the United States to Mexico is a chain link fence that just goes out into the surf and stops. Although it's pretty piratey and it sounds really cool. And it is, you know, I mean, it's a great picture in your mind about all that stuff. It's just swimming, swimming, swimming. That pirate image was helped along by Eddie's legendary stories. Lee says he heard that Eddie spotted a shark on one of these swims and decided. That was it for him. He said, you're not paying me enough money. We're not going to do this. Hence the rubber boats. Most people know about Zodiac boats because the Navy SEALs use them. So they're fast rubber boats, right? Very, very fast. So Lance was the entrepreneur. Eddie was the muscle. And with their new Zodiac boats, Lee says the business expanded because 25 pounds of weed wasn't going to cut it anymore, which Lee says means they needed better connections in Mexico. Neither of the guys spoke Spanish. Now comes Lou, uh, Lou Villar, who was everybody's uh, Spanish teacher. He's about 10 years older than us. Lance came to him and said, how would you like to make 50 bucks? And Lou said, what do I have to do? He said, come down to Mexico for us. He was a streetwise, really intelligent guy. Just a, just a little smarmy character, always, you know, figuring out how to, how to get an edge or how to make a dime. And he agreed to do that, went down to Mexico with Lance, met the Mexicans, negotiated the deal. So Lou became the interpreter. He was able to negotiate for bigger loads. Lance was able to put it onto bigger, faster boats. And it was just a natural kind of a progression, you know, instead of doing 500 pounds, it was a thousand. By the time Lee got involved, he says the Coronado guys had assembled a small crew. Lee was out of high school by then, living across the street from his best friend, Dave. And one night, Dave came knocking on my door and he had a bag, a, a big a cardboard box, and he, he needed to hide the cardboard box in my garage. And I didn't even think for a second about saying no or whatever. It turned out that it was full of weed, but that's where my introduction came into what these guys were doing. After the cardboard box incident, he says Dave brought him up to speed. He and the guys were smuggling another load from Rosarito, Mexico, very soon. Did Lee want in? They just needed more bodies to carry more bags down to the surf line. And uh, it was just Mexican weed, but those bags weighed 60 pounds a piece. And um, uh, so I don't remember what the math would be, how many it would take to get two tons in, but it's a lot. The pay for that for a, for a bag handler uh, was $500 a side. That was loading in Mexico and offloading in the United States. How much money was that at the time for you? Oh, that was quite a bit of money. Yeah, I was, that was easy money. So Lee decided yes. He was definitely in. So I went down there and we loaded up the boat. 
Lance had a, a Sea Ray at that time, which was a cigarette style racer cruiser kind of a thing. But Lance did everything, you know, bigger fuel tanks and more horsepower and better handling and things like that. He was a genius at that. And how much was this load? It's 2,000 pounds, I think, the first wow. load we did. So after the first time you did this, this became a thing that you did several more times. Yeah, I did it. I, I can't remember. Probably, probably four, three or four times, something like that. He says it was around this time that their group came up with a name for themselves. We were the Coronado Company. We named ourselves that. And he says this became the Coronado Company's new routine. The call would come in, you want to go to a barbecue tonight? Yeah, okay. So barbecue was the code word for loading and offloading. Yeah, yeah. That at was, the beach. That was a scam. And and we literally would barbecue. Because while you're collecting up and, uh, and waiting and warming motors up and blowing boats up and doing all this kind of stuff, we'd have uh, steaks on the barbecue and everything. And beer? And, and, and uh, beer and weed and everything else, yeah. I mean, it was just flagrant. They'd meet up on the beach in Mexico, load up their boat. Then we'd go back, I'd go home, get up the next morning and go to work. And when I got off work, I'd get on an airplane and fly up to Malibu. We'd get picked up up there, we'd get taken to the beach house, and we'd offload the, the boat on that side into the United States. Running two tons of weed down in Mexico, down the beach, is not like running two tons of weed up, you know on the U.S. side, it, you need to become a little more clandestine, a little more, a little more high-tech. Lee says that each time a load went out to sea in Mexico or got unloaded in the U.S., it was a rush of excitement and fear. As they worked, the clock was ticking. When the party got started, the only thing we needed to do was be gone at dawn. As much as the barbecues were a party, they were also becoming a challenge. It's getting bigger. It's becoming more sophisticated. It's more difficult. Sophisticated enough to handle 20 tons of weed. That's about the weight of three elephants or a fully loaded school bus. Lee remembers a load like this in Malibu. He and Eddie, the lifeguard who helped start this whole thing, were leading a team of guys on the beach. Lee describes the scene. They're unloading 20 tons of marijuana one Zodiac boat at a time. The stars above, the moonlight, the surf, guys in wetsuits pulling weed from the water. And now it's time to move their cargo to safety, using trucks equipped to drive on sand and carry the weight up the cliff. So we're in the middle of the night, we got this big load of, of weed on the beach and the trucks are going up and down trying to get to keep it up. We can get maybe 500 pounds into the truck and it's just going up the hill and down the hill, up the hill and down the hill. And here comes a father and his son out of the apartments there that are right there on the beach. They're coming down to do some surf fishing. Right around the corner, we've got our weed sitting there. So we shut down operations take these 25 guys in black rubber wetsuits and stuff and scurrying them over into the gorge and hide them up against the cliffs and hope that he doesn't see that there's a mountain on the middle of the frickin' beach down there. <laughs> a um, mountain of weed. And so Eddie gets off the boat, goes up to the house, gets out of his wetsuit, puts some clothes on, goes down to the beach again, goes over to the father and son and strikes up a conversation with them. He knows fishing and uh, surf fishing and all of that kind of stuff. Tells him, oh, you know, there was a great bite going on around the point down there. I was just out there a couple hours, blah, blah, whatever he was saying. And the guy goes, well, son, it sounds like let's go ahead and relocate. So the father and son thank him 
They walk down the beach, continuing their father and son fishing trip. Eddie runs back up, puts his wetsuit on, jumps in the Zodiac, blasts out through the surf again, and brings in another ton. Before he knows it, they pulled off a 20-ton load. More after the break. A few weeks later, Lee remembers getting a visit from his best friend Dave and from Lou, who's gone from interpreter to one of the Coronado Company leaders. And that's when they made the proposal, asked me to go full-time with them. And according to Lee, that full-time job was logistics. He and Dave were charged with planning the offloading operations down to a T. They study the coast of California, Malibu to Mendocino. We used topographical maps. We knew every logging road in that area. Lee says he was moving up in the company. And the company was expanding quickly. Then one of their members made a connection on a sailing trip in Southeast Asia. A connection that would be a complete game changer. And that was our Thai connection. If you guys could br were bringing weed from Mexico, which is right next door, why go all the way to Thailand to get weed? More expensive, more no money, comparison. more yeah, profit. Yeah. yeah, this is premium, premium, premium weed. But to get Thai weed into the US, the Coronado company needed to get even smarter. Lee describes how they got money into Thailand in duffel bags, bought boats that could traverse the Pacific, and radios that could communicate around the world. I had a radio guy that used to work for Woods Hole out on the East Coast. He was a massive technician. He made all of that stuff for us. And so that's how we communicated. They used those radios closer to home, too. Like when Lee was in Northern California, prepping for a 2,000-pound shipment of Thai weed. And we had uh, police scanners that we had up there. So we would listen to the, to the uh, police frequency up on the hill and actually had the sheriff get called one night while we were doing a dress rehearsal on a beach. He picks up the radio, I hear it, I'm saying he's on the way. He pull the trucks and the guy's underneath the bridge. The cop stops at the bridge and I'm watching him on my glasses and he just gets back on the radio. He goes, it's all clear here, everything's fine. He leaves and out comes the trucks. And I mean, it was just... In, in that case, it was actually a dress rehearsal. You were trying it out the day the yes, previous Yes, it was. We would do dry runs. And if anybody was honest, that's when they would come to get us. Uh -huh. And of course, there's nothing going on. Oh, it's a barbecue. So smart. I mean, this is all so smart. We learned years later that there's a difference between criminals and convicts. You know, we were criminals. We were convicts. Lee says they figured that no one could do what the Coronado Company did. They were smart, sophisticated, and now they had the very best product. Everyone of a Thai marijuana lows is quite an organizational effort. It's a major operation. So much, in fact, that this guy started sniffing around. My name is James Conklin. People call me Jim. At the time, Jim worked for the DEA. I was the case agent responsible for the Coronado Company investigation. 
and Jim started getting interested because of the sheer amount of money this tieweed was bringing in. If you brought in 10 tons, it'd be $32 million, which was a significant amount of money. We were flabbergasted at the amount of money. The Coronado company members were living large. People start thinking they're all of that. They get around other wealthy people. They're powerful. It gets out of hand. I mean, for Christ's sake, our, our guys, we had two of them that were members of the Santa Barbara Polo Club. These guys had never been on a horse. And they're in the polo club. Which you have to have millions of dollars to be able to afford totally. these horses. Yeah. Lee says the Coronado Company was losing sight of their roots. They had started as a ragtag surfer crew. Lance, the entrepreneur and engineer, Eddie, the swimmer, Lou, their Spanish teacher and translator. Lee says he and Dave always kept low profiles. But now the others. Lance had an exposure problem. Eddie had an exposure problem. They also couldn't hold back on their social event. Lance was, was just a seagoing cowboy pirate. Or he would go to a, a uh, high performance engine place with a suitcase full of money and Eddie would, uh, uh, would drive a, a, a new Porsche Targa. And they'd throw cocaine on the bar and, and give everybody free cocaine. And, and so, you know, there was an overt, an opulence uh, at that time. They owned homes in Montecito. They were traveling. They had gorgeous girlfriends. They had jets and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And all the while, Jim Conklin says he just kept following the money. If you could call the case a financial case, then it got a lot more attention. People finally took a look at the amount of money that was made, and they found out that marijuana traffickers made more money than anybody. I mean, that amount of money has my attention too. So I asked Lee, at this point, were you thinking things are going well? Um, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life? Or are you thinking I'm just trying to make enough money to then leave? Or what was your goal or your plan? Well, in my mind, there was always the million dollar payday. And um, do you and think you would have gotten out if you had been paid a million dollars? Well, probably not. It seems like the members of the Coronado Company thought they couldn't be stopped. They conquered Thai weed. Then they set their sights on hashish from the Middle East. And it just kept growing and growing. And Lee tells me he headed to the East Coast to make it happen. Here's how Lee tells the story. He and Dave drove up and down the coast. They did their recon. And Lee says they found a farmhouse in Machias, Maine. That was the perfect site for offloading. The Coronado Company bought the house. Lee describes himself as an expert by now. He and the company had a few rules to make sure they couldn't be found, including payphones only. House purchases went through their accountant. Only the inner circle kept records. And they tried not to overstay their welcome at an offloading site. This was our third scam at this house, and um, we had an ocean-going tugboat called the Tusker. She was um, 35 feet wide. It's that kind of a beefy boat. And um, we had him coming in with a load of hash. It was hand-pressed Afghani hash. About five tons of hash. Lee says that on board the Tusker is a new skipper who set to steer the load along the African coast, across the Atlantic, and touch base via radio when they're getting close. 
but all they hear is radio silence. And um, we start calling out to the boat, and he's not there, he's not there, he's not there. One checkpoint after another, the Tusker doesn't respond. We even sent a guy, we hired a seaplane, and they were gonna try to connect the boat with an airplane and drop a note to him. But that seaplane couldn't even find the Tusker. The bottom line was is we didn't talk to the boat. So the Afghani hash is already on the Tusker at this point? On the Tusker, on its way somewhere. Mm -hmm. This is like a $25 million load that's on this boat. And now Lee has no idea where that $25 million is. There's always a backup plan, of course. If they don't communicate, they'll meet at the cove near the farmhouse on the 50th day. But things seem to get worse. They get a tip. A woman and two guys in a Ford Bronco sitting at our gate just came down and sat out there all day long and had beer and sandwiches. Just hang out. Hmm, that's interesting. Two weeks later, here's the same crew. Their farmhouse has been found out. It's under surveillance. Now we know that the house that we're using is hot, and we basically just abandoned the house. But the Tusker is still on its way. On the 48th night, we know that the house is hot. Lee has to try to warn the Tusker, so he loads up a rubber Zodiac boat with the gear they need to radio the ship. We have it full of radio equipment. Uh, We've got nautical charts, and we have food, and we have all of our packs and gear and everything in case we have to run for it. It's the 13th of December. It's five degrees below zero. Absolute crystal clear full moon. The main ocean is just like a mirror glass out there. And we're just up there and, you know, just running in this little rubber boat, overpacked. I and mean, we're not getting any speed or anything and just coming up the coast and coming up the coast. Right outside of our cove is a couple of little volcanic little island jetties that show up a couple miles right out off our coast. And I'm motoring along and I look and, I, and you know, something's not right. And I get closer and closer and I go, oh shit, it's the Tusker. And I go up and I mean, it's so big, it looks like one of the islands. And I go, oh crap, the boat's here, not good. The Tusker is anchored in front of their abandoned safe house. And it's two nights early. And so we go up to the Tusker, and she is just covered in ice. I mean, ice is like six inches thick all over everything. Turns out that the skipper, through his own paranoia, decided not to make the radio contacts. He never tried to make a radio contact with us. And when they got up into the northern Atlantic, they weren't prepared for it. And so they didn't take the antennas down, so all the antennas froze and broke off. So then he couldn't talk. So I pull up alongside the boat, and I'm, and I'm hailing the skipper, and he finally comes out. And he is like sitting there freezing. His feet are wrapped up in newspaper, and he's got all this stuff. Turns out that they had an electrical issue on board. They blew their heater systems. The boat had no heat, on and on and on. They just had this hardship going on. And they're sitting in that boat, and it's frozen solid. There's no heat. And I'm going, I don't want to hear your story, man. 
the house is hot, here's some money, here's some food, here's the map, go back out, past 200 miles, come back in in five days at this beach, and we'll see you there, the house is hot. And we were gonna turn around and haul ass back down the coast. So he's heading out, I'm heading in, two Coast Guard cutters come in, bow to bow, light that place up like it's, like it's a Hollywood set. I mean, they've got spotlights and, and they've got us lit up. They got the Tusker lit up It's and it's translucent. The lights are going through the ice on the boat. As the Coast Guard comes in, up on the shoreline, oh, I don't know, maybe 50 guys come running up from the house. They're all hiding behind the house, wait, staking the Tusker out. And they're all, there's our cliff, and there's just these guys, this army of guys up there. It's DEA, rangers, coastal wardens, neighbors, you know, flashlights going everywhere. <laughs> Shit's all hitting the fan here now. So Lee decides to make a run for it. Remember that at this point, he and one of his offloading crew members were still in that heavy rubber boat. They rushed to put the boat ashore and literally run through the forest, dumping gear along the way. We hit, hit the beach and climb over the rocks and get, get going through the forest. And I get a little ways in and all of a sudden they turn around. Lee realizes he's alone. The guy who'd been with him on the boat has disappeared. I turn around and I go back. I said, well, you got to come, man. Let's go. Uh, and he goes, well, I, I, I don't know how to tell you this. He goes, I have night blindness. I can't see where I am. And I'm going, oh, man. So I'm at decision time. Am I going to keep going and leave him there? I just said, just bet it down, man. I said, we just pulled out our bags and laid out in the snow and hoped, hopefully we we're going to get to dawn before they found us. And short time later, we can hear them out at the boat that I had just ditched. They followed our tracks in, came up to us in our bags, and you know had the typical 45 with the you know the shaking hands and the, all the of that stuff. Yeah. Don't move, you you know the, all of that stuff. Lee was arrested and charged with conspiracy to import and conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute hashish. Lee figured he might get sentenced to a year or two but the riches would be worth it when he got out. Besides, the company had his back. Except Eddie and Lance and Lou, those guys living the high life, were having problems of their own. Because DEA agent Jim Conklin was building his case, trying to figure out just how much money the Coronado company was making and where its leaders were hiding. We wanted to identify all of the houses, all of the property, and he'd just gotten a very important tip from the IRS. And uh, what we learned, uh, they employed an, an accountant named Andy Willis. Andy Willis. He handled and cleaned the money for all the guys. So Jim set up a sting operation on Andy Willis's office. We got the, the uh, San Diego Trash Company to uh, provide us a supervisor and a trash truck. And uh, I'd go out in the garbage truck every, every Tuesday and I'd have to empty the trash uh, barrels. And then we would take it out and we would retrieve all that trash. And when Jim tells me all the trash, he really means it. 
Well, unfortunately, we had to look good. So we had to look like we really blended. So I'd have to do the whole street. And it, let me tell you, those trash cans are very heavy. <laughs> Jim was looking for incriminating documents in the garbage. Documents about what the Coronado Company members were buying. Houses and boats for their smuggling operations, bank accounts. And it was a treasure trove. I mean, we found fabulous uh, evidence from th those trash runs. Now we could show what major drug traffickers they've moved from emerging kids and small level traffickers to now we, we realize that they were big name traffickers. The very things that had made the Coronado Company so successful were beginning to work against them. Remember, their purchases went through their accountant and those purchases were evidence of all the money they'd made on the black market. And therefore, Jim could take them. The way to really hurt a drug trafficker is to take away his toys. That's the point of the whole thing, is, is to make a lot of money, and they wanted to have beautiful yachts and 10 different cars, 12 different cars, and, and big houses, you know, throw lavish parties, that type of thing. So you take away their toys, you take away their bank accounts. And then, Jim says, you go looking for informants. It's, it's always good to have people talk. It's, I think it's always beneficial uh, to have as much information as you can get and indict as many traffickers as you can. And the Coronado Company had burned some bridges. One low-level member even turned himself into the DEA. He said, listen, I want to give up this organization. They had cut him out of the group, and he was upset about it. They debriefed him and, and got the details of the Coronado Company from the time that they first started to when he got tossed out. One informant turned into two. And soon, Jim says, he had all the information he needed for major trafficking charges. They were all arrested uh, around the country and brought to San Diego for this big second indictment. Every big name drug attorney in, in California was on that case. They came and picked me up at Lompoc. I was already serving two years at Lompoc for the main deal. Lee found himself facing more time behind bars transferred from Lompoc Prison, just north of Santa Barbara, down to Metropolitan Correction Center in San Diego. I immediately became a high security risk after that point. I don't like to use the words despair and things like that, but it certainly is a, a, a opportunity for that to, to, to start sprouting. Lee's business partners were facing prison sentences. And Jim says they weren't feeling so great themselves. A lot of these guys were college educated and, and uh, smart guys, and they were hippies that loved money. And most of them could not take jail. They, they weren't hardened criminals. To them, jail was quite foreign to them and difficult. One by one, Coronado Company members began to flip. Lee sat silently in his jail cell, even as his friends began aligning themselves with DEA investigators. Anytime you run in a crew like this, um, th that thought is never in your mind, and it all comes as, as hindsight, and it makes sense. So how many of them actually became informants? Um, the Lou Fuzzy, Lance. Oh, all your closest friends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ultimately, the, the tragedy of that, the, the, um, the betrayal uh, of that is a big deal, because we're a brotherhood. There was one betrayal that hit Lee harder than all the others. 
He was stuck in federal detention. Dave, his best friend, the one who invited him to join the company, who'd been there from the start, was in the process of rolling. Jim says he'd been working on Dave for a while. I went up and visited him, and initially he would have nothing to do with it. He would have nothing to do with it, you know. Uh, but eventually, uh, eventually he saw the light. Lee had no idea about Jim's visits or Dave's change of heart until one day, Dave was just gone. That story of deception and deceit and manipulation and the, the glory of growing and everything, but that arc was our natural doom to failure and it can now be graphed to where it all came apart, like they all do. Even your friendships in many ways, right? Unfortunately, there are some things that changed along that way, yeah, and, and, that, and that's heartbreaking. Does any part of you wish that they had... Uh, oh, no, no. <laughs> they'd gotten you no. instead of David? No. Why not? No, I, I'm just not... I'm, it's not in my core makeup. It's not... Uh, no, it never would happen. Lee never cooperated with the DEA. He never became one of Jim's informants. If you're talking to Conklin, tell him I said hello, by the way. We call them stand-up ones that, that will not take a deal, and they will not talk against their, their buddies. Stand-up. A good character. They're not going to give up their friends. Uh, they, they'll go to jail. He was convicted of his conspiracy charges and sentenced to four years in federal prison. I ask him, was it worth it? Now we go into what's called the unintended consequences of our actions. The things that you lose as you get inside, nobody can hear you scream in there. And you watch your life fall apart on the outside. I mean, virtually you lose everything that you've got. I walked out with nothing. I walked out with, I don't know, I had $30 in my pocket at the halfway house from working inside. And I got out, got a job. My second paycheck was confiscated full. IRS filed a civil suit mm -hmm. against me and docked every penny I made for the next 20 years after that. I still don't own a home, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll never have a chance to own a home the way my life works right now. It's 40 years now since we did this thing. Now, if you ask me, did we have a good time? We really did have, <laughs> we were really innovative. We did some very cool shit. That's why there's still a hook on this thing after all these years. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think most people, the image that stays when talking about trafficking operation or smuggling, you keep the image of the excitement, the money you can make, the fun times, right? That's the glorifying, the glorification of, uh, of this world. Look at El Chapo. Right. Look at Pablo Escobar. How much money they had to buy their freedom. Where are they? Are they not gonna catch you? Yeah. Are you really that smart one? Yeah, well, El Chapo was a few times. Yeah, for <laughs> sure, a long time. Yeah, for Americans. a long time, but he ain't now. Is this ultimately the message, do you think, you'd like to share with people? Well, it's the reality. You lose more than you gain. You lose. If you're curious about what happened to the rest of the Coronado Company members, stay tuned after the credits for a quick summary. The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to our TV series, Trafficked, from National Geographic and Muck Media. 
The TV series airs every Wednesday on National Geographic and is available now on Hulu. This episode was produced by Francesca Fenzi and our lead producer, Margaret Catcher. Our associate producer for this episode is Abby Spears. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Eric Carbonara. Production help from Scott Kirk and Ted Woods. Original music by Jeff Morrow. Paula Benson is line producer. Executive producers for Nat Geo are Chris Albert, Ben Tanderson, and Sean Johnson. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Plunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Mariana Van Zeller. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Tell your friends to rate and review the show if you've enjoyed what you heard. Special thanks to Mark Levenstein, Todd Herman, Aaron Pfeiffer, Trey Scott, Jim Conklin, and of course, the man himself, Lee Strimple. Eddie the Otter Otero died of a heart attack while tuna fishing in Mexico. Lance Weber moved back to Coronado and tried to start his own performance speedboat business. After testifying for the DEA, Lou Villar changed his name. Jim Conklin spent 20-something years with the DEA. After investigating the Coronado Company, he moved to Thailand and spent four years dismantling the supply of Thai marijuana into the United States. Dave and Lee have spoken a few times in the past 40 years, but Lee says they're no longer friends.